Yes, he said, you'll receive power. And if we look at chapter 2 of Acts, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit, but you see this remarkable power actually in action. You see this disciple that had been afraid of a servant girl and her question suddenly stands up uh, in front of a vast crowd of people. You see the disciples that couldn't understand Jesus sometimes and certainly didn't understand the Old Testament. Now they do understand and they're able to quote it and to explain its relevance. And then there were 3,000 converted in that day come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an example of the power that Jesus was talking about. We are going to look at this this morning for just a little while to see what happened and to see what it can show us about what it is to be a Christian. Now it's important to do this because there are all kinds of ideas today about what a Christian is. People say, well, if you believe in God in some sort of way, well, you, you must be a Christian. People say, well, if you, if you lead a good life, well, you're a Christian, and you can be a better Christian outside the church than you are in it. People will say, well, of course, you get yourself baptized either as a child or later on. Well, it makes you a Christian. You go to church, you're a Christian. You have some great emotional experience and you feel that God is there in some way. Well, you must be a Christian. But I think if we really want to know what being a Christian is, we need to go back to the beginning. And this was the very first Christian sermon preached after the coming of the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say when he was so greatly under the influence of the Holy Spirit? What did he tell the people to do? Seems to me the most logical thing to do, we want to know what Christianity is or what being a Christian is, to go back to the beginning. So, imagine the scene. Densely crowded Jerusalem, teeming with people. Just as they had come from around Jerusalem and the whole area around and from Galilee for the Passover, there had been many, many thousands there then, so they had come again for this important feast. There were also visitors there from probably 15 different locations, some of them hundreds of miles away. They were the ones surprised to hear um, the speech in their own language. Here were people who had been with this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. And now they're calling out and they're praising God well, yes, in our local Aramaic, to be sure, but in other languages as well. What's going on? They couldn't possibly have learned them and known them. How has it happened? What's it all about? Well, we know what happens next. Peter gets up. He says, no, they're not drunk, as some of you think. This is what God promised from the Old Testament. And he starts a sermon by quoting from the Old Testament. He does it, of course, because they were Jews and they treasured the Old Testament. They regarded it as the word of God. So he quotes um, to them from Joel about God's promise that his spirit 
would be given to all kinds of people, not just prophets, not just kings, not other important people, but all kinds of people would receive his spirit. This is it, says Peter. And then a bit later he quotes two psalms. David, he says, was a prophet too. Look what he says. Now, we haven't got time to look into this this morning, but I think we need to notice that this New Testament church is very firmly rooted in Old Testament promises. Don't divide them from the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus of Nazareth, says, says uh, Peter right at the beginning. It's all due to him. This Jesus of Nazareth was the one that you crucified. He was well attested with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This was good accreditation. It was evidence of who he was. Yet you had him crucified by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up again. It was not possible that death should hold him. He's alive now, says Peter. You, you, you sense the urgency, even the excitement in his voice. He's alive now. We are his witnesses. We've seen him. God raised him. His physical presence is no longer on earth with us. He's now at the right hand of God, highly exalted. He has received the promise of the Holy Spirit, which has now been given to us. It is he, this Jesus, that has poured out what you see and hear. It's his doing. And this is the Holy Spirit. You're, you're seeing the effects of the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. And then he goes on a bit later. He said, know this, he said, in raising this Jesus from the dead, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord, the Supreme One, the title of God in the Old Testament. Now he's the glorious Son of God at God's right hand. It says he's made him both Lord and Christ, the promised Messiah that you said you were expecting and looking for. Peter doesn't mean he's only just begun to be these things. He was these things already during his life and work on earth. But Peter means that God has exalted him to be in reality and power what he was by right. This Jesus, you had him crucified. God has raised him and he's taken him to the highest place, Lord and Christ, vindicated by his resurrection and his ascension. And you crucified him, he says. Imagine saying that to thousands upon thousands of people. People doesn't mince his words and they believe him. What shall we do? A little digression. Sometimes it's said that... Uh, to be a Christian is to commit intellectual suicide. You don't think, you Christians. You just go along with the rest. You just accept a bundle of myths. 
Perhaps it's the way you were brought up, but you don't think for yourself. Maybe it's because you like the company, uh, the social life of the church, or you like the warm fuzzies that you get sometimes. No thinking person would want to be a Christian. But look what's just happened here. Peter has presented them with undeniable facts, and he's making them think. He wants them to think. He challenges them. He doesn't say, you know, you've been very naughty, but never mind, God is love, it'll be all right in the end. He says, no, see what you've done and think about it. You killed the one God sent. What's your position before God now? The one you murdered is now Lord of all. You see, he's not saying nice things to soothe their conscience. It's been pointed out that the first thing the Christian gospel does is to make you think. They say Christians don't think. People today think of all manner of things. The telly, their football team, who's going to win the rugby, their career, their family, their money, their house, their next holiday, their marriage, their retirement, all kinds of things but they don't want to think about their relationship with God. They'll put that off. And yet this is exactly what the Christian gospel does. It comes to us and it makes us think how we stand before God. The Holy Spirit did this in Peter's day and he does it in our day. This is what it, he will do for us when we hear the gospel, he causes us to think about things that we have neglected. How do I stand before God? What is my eternal destiny? And if you find yourself thinking about things like this, don't put your head in the sand. Don't say, oh, well, I'll think about it some other time. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He's making you think. It's what the Christian gospel does. Well, let's come back to the story. What shall we do, they say? What shall we do? What can we do? They were cut to the heart. They were conscience-stricken. You know, sometimes um, people will ask a question. It's a kind of fencing. As if, um, well, suppose Peter says, look what you've done. And they say, all right, well, what do you want us to do about it? It's a kind of fencing. But it's not here. They're conscience-stricken. They realize his words were true. They're convicted of their sin, and they realize that they are guilty. Peter, what shall we do? And he says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, said Peter, is for everyone. It's for you, your children, your descendants, and for people afar off. Repent, he said. Change your minds. Change your way of life. You rejected him, his life and his teaching. 
you went along with the rest of the crowd, realize what you have done, and turn around. Change your attitude to him. Listen to his words. Follow him. And of course, it's what the gospel says to us today. This is the Christian message. It comes to us and it says, repent, turn around. I remember seeing in Australia, on a dual carriageway, there was a sign up on the wrong side of the carriageway. Stop, turn around, you're in the wrong direction. (laughs) All we do is put up a no entry sign. Very graphic. This is exactly what the gospel says to us. You're going in the wrong direction. Stop. Turn around. He said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn around, go in his direction. You need to believe on him. You need to commit yourselves to him. He he is the important one. Identify yourselves and your life with him. God has made him both Lord and Christ. It's what you need to be thinking of and who you need to be looking at is this Jesus Christ. He said you do this for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's clear he's not just thinking about the sin of having got him crucified um, just uh, seven weeks or so ago. He says do this for the forgiveness of your sins, in the plural. In principle, in those days, people knew that they weren't good enough for God. The whole system of sacrifices and offerings told them that. And there had been John the Baptist um, about three years before. He'd gone around telling people, the nation, to repent. They knew what Peter was saying. But Peter is saying this time that forgiveness is in the name, in the person of Jesus Christ, this one whom they had rejected. And if they turned to him, they could be forgiven even for that sin of getting him crucified and rejecting him in that way. Come to him, believe on him, says Peter, for the forgiveness of your sins. Then where does this baptism come in? He says, be baptized, be re- repent and be baptized. Would you believe it? My little thing has gone to sleep. I have to wake it up. Excuse me. <laughs> repent and be baptized, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. It doesn't mean that baptism brings forgiveness. Baptism is not the essential thing, forgiveness, but it is a mark of repentance and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just the same as John the Baptist's baptism. You remember he called people to repentance and then they were baptized to show their repentance, their change of heart. So Peter is saying, now if you come to believe on this Lord Jesus Christ, and you've turned away from your old life, if you've asked for his forgiveness, if you now intend to follow his way, be baptized. It's a declaration of commitment to the one who brings us 
forgiveness and reconciliation. No New Testament Christian was unbaptized. They gladly followed the way of faith and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If we claim to have repented and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet refuse or neglect baptism, what kind of Christian are we? What would Peter say to us? Peter went on for a long time. <laughs> it says, with many other words, he spoke to them. We, of course, this chapter is only an outline. I mean, this sermon went on for hours, and we can read this in a few minutes. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, he said. That was the, the, the thrust of what he was saying, according to Luke. And it was really a quotation from Joel that he just said to them, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's saying to them, call on the Lord, repent, ask him to forgive you, believe on him. And this is what the gospel says to us today too. Well, what about the outcome? Some sermon 3,000 people converted. The infant church had begun to grow. How did they go on? Well, there's verse 42 that was read to us a bit earlier. And it says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers been held as a concise summary of Christian discipleship. The remaining verses show how this has worked out. There was a great sense of awe as the disciples were enabled to uh, do remarkable signs and wonders. It was a spirit-filled church. We hear that phrase sometimes. If ever there was a spirit-filled church, it was this one. They were dominated by this spirit that had just been given to them. And what were they prompted to do? Well, very, very briefly. First of all, they went on learning. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They had been challenged to think in the first place, and they needed to go on thinking and learning. Our minds are important as Christians. We don't leave them aside when we become Christians. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. The important thing is not mystical experience, but practical discipleship. That, that very same teaching that that church heard from the apostles is available to us today in our New Testament. How much time do we give to reading it? How much time are we prepared to devote to listening to explanations of it and applications of it to our lives? They went on learning and they cared for one another. It's possible to belong to a church in a very selfish way. 
A bit like belonging to a club. You pay your subs and you take out of the club what you want and you don't really have much obligation towards any of the others. You're just all there to get what you can. As if sometimes we appear to think that we don't owe anything to the life of the church. We're not members of church just for what, for what we can get. Praise God, we get something. <laughs> We're meant to. But we are also meant to give. We don't say, well, I'm not going to join in with that. I don't feel like that. There, there's a sense in which we belong together. We have a responsibility. These believers encouraged one another. They supported one another in their Christian lives and they even supported financially where needed. The teaching here is not that every Christian should sell everything that they have and give it away, but this is a temporary situation and they were prompted by the Holy Spirit so to care for one another that they would even support one another financially. Caring prompted by the Holy Spirit. They became generous and caring people. They went on learning. They cared for one another. They worshipped together in their homes and in the temple. It says they uh, broke bread together. And I think this means two things. It means that they had meals together in their homes and they also celebrated that service of remembrance that Jesus had given to his disciples. They ate bread and they drank wine in remembrance of Jesus and what he had done. They prayed. They prayed in the temple. They prayed at home. You don't get the impression that they worshipped as little as possible. Quite the contrary. How do we compare today? So they went on learning, they cared for one another, they worshipped together and they were outward looking. Obviously they were sharing what had happened to them with others. The church went on growing. Their behavior was no secret. They were a remarkable new community. And they knew the gospel was for everyone even those a great distance off. The church went on growing. So we've looked at this chapter to try and see what real Christianity is, what the gospel is, and what it means to live as a Christian. Not some mystical experience, we've seen that, not being gullible and believing anything, not just being good, not a matter of some ritual. How does the Holy Spirit lead us. He leads us to think. Our minds are important. The gospel comes to you and the challenge is to think. To recognize that we are guilty before God. To repent. To acknowledge that we fall short in many ways. We are offenders against God's majesty and kindness. There's a Bible word that we don't like to use these days. The Bible word is sinners. We recognize that in God's sight we are sinners. We need to turn around. And then the Holy Spirit leads us to call on him. Just as Peter said, 
Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the Lord Jesus. We trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. This is something we can't earn or deserve. So we're to think, to recognize we're guilty, to repent, to call on the Lord, to show our repentance and faith in baptism, to continue in the teaching of the apostles as in the New Testament, and to remain in company with our fellow believers and to be open to others. These events of Pentecost are history. But more than that, they show us what it is to be a Christian and what happens when the Holy Spirit comes to us. Let's ask ourselves, am I a Christian? Am I like them? Have these things ever happened to me in some measure or other? What am I going to do 